Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and some of the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and someone who worries about science communication and how we're connecting our innovations with the public that needs to know about them. And today's episode will be awesome. Since the beginning, six years ago, I've wanted to talk about golden rice, and it's a topic that is so critical, yet has so many important edges. And I was able to, um, a few years ago, uh, see Patrick Moore give a talk on golden rice. And it was more than a talk on golden rice. It was a talk about his beginnings in activism and how that eventually led to a very strong advocacy for the food insecure. So that's what we'll talk about today. So um, I'm speaking to uh, uh, Patrick Moore. He comes to us from British Columbia. Uh, and, uh, so welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Good to be with you, Kevin. Nice to, nice to hear you again. Yeah, that's really, really great. I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. And the thing that, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, when I saw your talk, I always appreciated you because of your very... And maybe it's changed a little bit recently, but very aggressive position on golden rice and something I really feel strongly about, too. But when I went to see your talk, I thought I would hear about golden rice the whole way through. But it really started with your role with Greenpeace. And you showed some pictures where you had a lot more hair and uh, maybe, I don't know, you're maybe in your 20s. But can you tell me a little bit more about that time? And, uh, you know, what your work was as a founding me member of Greenpeace and some of the issues you took on. Yes, Kevin. Well, I was really fortunate to be born on the very northwest tip of Vancouver Island in a floating village with no road to it and went to school by boat every day for eight years. So it was a bit of a unique situation, kind of like on the East Coast, we have the Newfoundland outports which were similar villages that had no road to them. So boats were the main means of transportation. I grew up in the, in, in the rainforest of the West Coast. Uh, I, I grew up in nature, playing on the tide flats and in the forests and out in my rowboat and eventually got a two-horsepower Johnson uh, on a little rowboat when I was 12. So that's how I started life. But the school only went to grade eight there, and I had to be sent to Vancouver to boarding school where I excelled in science. I'd, I'd already been very interested in science as a, as a young boy, and uh, life science became the center of everything for me. Uh, I entered the University of British Columbia to do an honors Bachelor of Science and, the, and some forestry to the science side of forests. And then I entered a PhD. Now, this was in the late in the late 1960s, the word ecology had not yet been seen in the public press. No one knew of that word, except for a very 
small group of scientists. And yet environment was now being discussed a lot. And I decided as a PhD student, I'd like to do something about the situation then, which was the height of the Cold War and the threat of all-out nuclear war, the height of the Vietnam War, and the emerging consciousness of the environment. And I joined this little group in a church basement called the Don't Make a Wave Committee, and we became Greenpeace. I sailed on the first voyage of Greenpeace from Vancouver, Canada to Alaska against the U.S. hydrogen bomb testing in the Aleutian Islands, and we made history. And that was the beginning of 15 years full-time after I got my PhD. I didn't go into a normal job. I stayed with, uh, with Greenpeace as it grew from a group of volunteers into a multinational organization by the time I left in 1986. And that's a lot of stories in between and a whole nother story about why I had to leave. Yeah, but one of the things that is really important that people need to know that they don't know about you and that really it just it it just gave me mad respect through the roof. There was a slide you showed of you in a with some other guys in a little inflatable dinghy, like a like a zodiac, positioning yourself between a whale and Japanese whalers. And you gotta, I mean, for me to think about that, it gave me chills. Like here is somebody who's putting themselves in this position. You know, these whalers could have just as easily shot that raft and no one would have ever known. And, you know, how, 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 how did you take these things on and what was it like to be taking on something of that magnitude? Well, first they would have known because we actually had a few more rubber boats with movie cameras and still cameras documenting the whole thing. And that's what actually blew Greenpeace into an international organization was that confrontation with the Russian and Japanese whalers in the North Pacific beginning in 1975. Four years of voyages I was on into there, uh, leading two of those voyages. And eventually we stopped factory whaling, which was killing 30,000 uh, big whales in the high seas uh, at that time. And uh, it was as, as because of our campaign, it was basically reduced to virtually nothing. The Japanese uh, have, have continued to try to kill whales some years, a few, some years, none. But basically, we ended it and saved the demise of a lot of these species uh, out, in, out in the ocean. And what, what a wonderful time that was and what a great victory it was. Uh, and we did a lot of other things, too. Near the end of my time in Greenpeace, we were mostly focused on toxic waste going into the air and water. And when, when we got into the issue of toxicity and pollution, it became so that you actually needed to know a little science. To, to save the whales, well, you don't really need to be a marine biology PhD. And to stop nuclear war, you don't have to be a nuclear physicist. But to understand toxicology and pollution, you really do need some science. And my fellow Greenpeace International directors did not have any formal science education. I was the only one who did. And they decided in the mid-80s that we should have a campaign to ban chlorine worldwide. And I said, yeah, you guys, there's some things that we shouldn't do with chlorine, like breathe it as a gas. I mean, it can be used as a, a, as a military weapon for that. But when it's in the form of sodium chloride or when it's in the form of medicine or in the form of 
of using chlorine in drinking water and swimming pools, it's the most important advance in public health and medicine is based on that one of the 94 natural chemicals named chlorine. And it fell on deaf ears and that was the sharp end of the stick. That's what really made me leave. But I'd been thinking about leaving for some time because as we began, we had a very strong humanitarian orientation as well as the concern for the environment. That's why we were called Green Peace, Green for the Environment and Peace for Civilization, living in peace and not blowing ourselves up. And so as time went on, the peace kind of got lost and it was only green in the end. And then a, a nasty thing happened. The environmental movement started characterizing the human species as the enemy of nature, the enemy of the environment, as if we were the only bad species on earth. And that was just way too much like original sin for me. I don't buy that. And I know we are all part of nature and all come from the same beginning of life. We're not like some, some separate thing that came from Mars. And so uh, I had to leave for good then in 1986 and decided to fashion myself a sensible environmentalist, basing my positions on logic and science rather than on sensationalism, misinformation, and fear, which was creeping in very strongly to the agenda of the environmental movement in general, not just our Greenpeace group. Well, then we start about that same time. You're talking about the late 1980s, early 1990s. There became this buzz about genetic engineering and this idea of engineering food staples to solve the problem of vitamin A deficiency. And I know this has been something important for you for a long time, but let's start talking about vitamin A deficiency. How bad is that problem worldwide and where do we see the problem the worst? Vitamin A deficiency, which is basically a lack of beta carotene, which is what makes carrots and, and sweet potatoes orange, is the worst deficiency in the world by far. And sadly, it affects children and pregnant women more than other members of society because of their needs for it. 250 million children are vitamin A deficient, mainly in the tropical developing countries, but surprisingly, Mexico has a very high rate of vitamin A deficiency too. And somewhere between, according to uh, the, the World Health Organization and, and, and the other international groups looking into this, between one and two million people die every year from vitamin A deficiency. And before they die, about up to half a million of them go blind. Because as most people know, it's good to eat carrots for your eyesight. That's because they have beta carotene in them. And that's what's lacking in the diet of many poor people in the tropics. Because the poorest people only get a cup of rice a day. And rice is the main staple in much of the tropics. So that adds up to hundreds of millions of people, depending on rice as their primary energy source, and not getting enough fresh fruit and vegetables along with it in the poorer countries, in the poorer villages. And that's why this is the worst vitamin deficiency or essential nutrient deficiency in the world. And when I learned that Ingo Potricus and his science people in Europe had invented a biotech uh, rice that had beta carotene in it. You see, rice has no 
beta carotene in the grain of rice. It has, like all green plants, it has beta carotene in the leaves, in the green parts of the plant. And for example, yellow corn, the reason it's yellow is because of beta carotene. And the little bit of yellow under a potato skin is beta carotene. And many of our staple plants do have beta carotene in them, but not rice. And it was soon determined when they tried that they could not think of a traditionally breeding technique to get beta carotene into rice. So Ingo Potricus and uh, Peter, uh, I'm forgetting yeah, Bayer. His, or uh, Bayer. By Peter Bayer, yes. Uh, yeah. Ingo from Switzerland, Bayer from Germany. And they figured out how to use the new science of genetic engineering or genetic modification, as it was called, recombinant DNA technology, to put beta carotene into a grain of rice so that the plant itself put the beta carotene there and that this would solve vitamin A deficiency worldwide. And so when I heard about that, I think it was in in, 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 when I first heard about genetic engineering, actually, before the golden rice was invented, I volunteered myself to go and visit the Monsanto labs in St. Louis and to meet the people uh, who, were, who were beginning this new technology and was fascinated by it. I actually became a spokesperson for BIO, which is the Washington, D.C.-based group. For four years, I attended the BIO conference explaining to the media uh, what this new technology was. And then, of course, Ingo invented golden rice. And in all my lectures after that, for the next five, ten years, more actually, it was more like 13 years, I, I talked about golden rice as one of the modules in my discussion of environment uh, and tried to get people to be aware of it. But time dragged on and on and on. And the amazing thing is, is that this was a plant that had been modified to have beta carotene in it. There was nothing unusual. It's not like it was a medicine. Uh, it's, it was a food. And I know that if this had been something that could cure malaria or uh, HIV, AIDS or dengue, and it was a medicine that could kill the germ that was causing those, either the bacteria or whatever organism was causing those diseases, that it would have been adopted in six months or a year, even though medicines are usually toxic because that's what we're trying to do is kill the organism inside us that is trying to kill us without killing ourselves. Whereas with golden rice, it just has beta carotene, an essential nutrient in it. And there's, there's no possibility of it having harmful side effects other than making you healthy. And this is the tragedy that has occurred. It's 21 years since Ingo Potricus invented golden rice, and it still isn't being grown for human consumption, even though the Philippines finally approved it last year, well, in the, at the end of 2019. They finally approved it. And Greenpeace and the rest of them continue to fight against it, a, a complete and total crime against humanity on their part for trying to stop and successfully stopping something that can fix Two million people from dying every year and, and a horrible death to die from a vitamin A deficiency. It's not something that happens overnight. It's a very slow and painful situation. So I, I've, I've never understood why uh, such, a, such a, a, a moral delinquency could be allowed to continue, but it does continue even to this day. It is not being distributed to the people who need it.
And I, a couple of points there. I think that I've heard over the years that the numbers of vitamin A deficient people are likely very underreported because vitamin A deficiency manifests in so many different ways and other health ailments that are, you know, from immunological all the way through very acute digestive effects, everything else um, that you just don't ring up somebody's death as a vitamin A deficiency. It was chronic diarrhea or something else. So this was maybe an underreported problem, but the solution that was proposed had a lot of pushback. And maybe you could give me, you know, your thoughts on that. A lot of people said, well, uh, it doesn't have enough beta carotene, so it, therefore it's useless. So how do you respond to that one? The original uh, prototype did not have enough beta carotene, but Syngenta stepped in because they actually owned some of the procedures and, and volunteered to give them as a humanitarian uh, donation to the Golden Rice Project. Uh, you know, you can, you can find out about Golden Rice by going to goldenrice.org. Uh, which is the Golden Rice Project with Ingo Potricus as the head of it. Uh, or you can also go to our website, allowgoldenricenow.org, which is the history of our campaign during the mid-19, dur during, during the, from 2023 till 2016 in Europe and in Asia to bring awareness to the people through the media and demonstrate at Greenpeace offices against them for being opposed to it. So you can find out the history of all this with no difficulty, but by about 2004, uh, it had been proven to be efficacious in terms of having plenty of, of beta carotene to eliminate the vitamin A deficiency. So that is not an argument. No, the main reason that the, that the environmental so-called movement uh, oppose Golden Rice and continues to, is they don't want any GMO to be a humanitarian success story. That's the problem. They want to be able to attack uh, on the basis of uh, it being, you know, thinking that they tell people it's toxic. They tell people all kinds of things. And in, in my new book, which I'll speak about towards the end, uh, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, I point out one salient <laughs> fact. That salient fact is that whatever it is that is in GMOs that is bad for you, supposedly, must be invisible because apparently you can't see it with a 10 million times electron microscope, never mind hold it in your hand and show it to people. So it's invisible. But that's not all. It also has no name and it has no chemical formula that has been written down anywhere. It's impossible to have something that does not have a chemical formula. All gases, liquids, and solids in the universe are made of elements from the periodic table. And so one would think that people could just say, look, it must not exist because it does not have a name or a chemical formula, and you're just making this up. And that is the fact. So I don't know why it has stuck so 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 hard. It's as if people are willing to believe that there's a boogeyman inside there or something. You know, there's nothing in there that is harmful in the GMOs. And what what is it? This a a, a religious belief, uh, superstition? Uh, I don't know. But all I know is is there's nothing there. Well, probably the best interpretation might be that it's just a proxy for 
uh, the multinational seed companies, which are doing their thing somewhere else and they're supplying seeds to farmers and all that stuff. But what it is, is it's a technology that they have to be so opposed to because, uh, as you say, if they show that this is an acceptable use of this technology, it makes it much harder for them to stand hard line against farmers making choices against other genetic engineering techniques. You have to do any use of this technology is icky, right? And and that seems to be their best defense. But do you think that that's kind of fading a little bit? No, Greenpeace immediately filed an objection to the acceptance of golden rice by the Philippines government uh, with, within a few weeks. So they're still putting up the fight. And it's, you know, Greenpeace used to be out in the open. We were out in the open campaigning in front of cameras and doing things that needed to be done. They're totally behind closed doors now. I bet nobody can name any of the directors of Greenpeace International. I don't even know if they make them publicly known. Uh, they're behind closed doors in the globalist movement, you know, Davos and that whole thing. Uh, they're, they're just in it for the power and the influence. They're not doing anything good or useful. We had a $40,000 boat to save the whales in the, in the 1970s. They've got a $32 million boat and it's floating around like kids on a college summer cruise. They don't do anything anymore. They just go around on their what they call sailboat, which actually has an 1800 horsepower diesel engine in it. They never mention the word engine ever. They don't say that word because it's a diesel engine that uses fossil fuels. They just put sails on it to make it look like a sailboat. It is, you could say, sail assist. That's what mariners refer to a motorized vessel which has a sail on it. But they're just totally phony now. And uh, they're, they're basically turned into a racket peddling junk science. And this is one of the junk sciences that they're peddling is the opposition to golden rice. Well, they're one of a number of organizations. And I know over the years, I've seen the pushback on so many levels from threatening the scientists who are going to measure vitamin A uh, in the blood of college students who eat, you know, uh, uh, beta carotene enriched bananas. I mean, it's been that insane to see this. But through all of the different criticisms, are there any of them that stick? Like, what do you think is a legitimate argument against the technology? Is there something that makes sense? You could make an argument that, you know, they say it's playing God. That's their best argument. But so is building a fire. And so is making concrete. And so is building a house out of wood. These are It's all playing God if you want to say that we should just be an animal uh, with no tools and, and, and no use of any resources other than scrounging our, our food in the forest or something. So that, that, that's not really a very strong argument in my view, that, that, we're, that, that the reason we shouldn't do it is because we're playing God. We've been modifying plant genetics ever since agriculture began, and that is over 10,000 years ago. And of course, we've been using fire for half a million years or somewhere around there. Uh, th th this is, 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 is actually... Uh, the same sort of movement when people were against trains, uh, when trains first came out. It's, it's absolutely silly when it comes right down to it. And, it, and it, you could call it silly if it wasn't so serious. 
because it's causing the continued death of millions of children and pregnant women, the poorest people in the world, who die quietly with no notice, and they don't care. That is the moral case here. They are evil, these people, who are preventing the use of this invention. We said right from the beginning, okay, Greenpeace, you can be against GMOs all you want, but at least make an exception for this one. Surely there could be possibly one good GMO. Instead of this absolutist position, it would be like saying the reason you can't have fire is because it might burn down your house. You know, that kind of argument. So therefore, fire is banned. And you can't have heat. You can't have a fire in your house to heat your house or cook your food because it might burn your house down. And with golden rice, there isn't even a mite. What it might do is cure millions of people from a terrible deficiency, nutritional deficiency. It's, got, it's not a disease. It, there is no disease agent involved. It is purely a deficiency of an essential nutrient of which there are quite a number, and that is one of the most important ones. Uh, yeah, and a micronutrient. I mean, something that is there in such vanishingly small amounts that the amount of uh, beta carotene in the head of a pin, uh, equivalent to a head of a pin, would supply someone for months. And so this is a really, really horrendous problem. Now, here's here's an argument that maybe you could you could touch on. You know, just me playing devil's advocate is that rice is not a monolithic thing. It's not the stuff that comes out of an Uncle Ben's pack, packet. You know, uh, in the Philippines is different in Japan and different in China and India um, and Bangladesh, all these different places throughout Asia that where rice is a critical staple have very different ideas of what rice is in terms of its, uh, you know, its texture and its color and, and how it grows there. So was the idea of using golden rice, a kind of naive panacea and that it would serve everybody despite those differences. No, not at all. Every one of those different types of rice, whether it's sticky rice or basmati rice, is a genetic uh, situation. It, it's because they're genetically different. And so what you do is you inject the golden rice gene into each of those varieties. It's a time-consuming process, but that's what people who are breeding rice are doing. They are making different strains of rice from what was originally a wild rice. And so all of these cultural uh, differences in the rice can be incorporated into golden rice by, by putting the modification into those varieties for those local uh, communities. It, it, that's what's being done in the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines. And there's also, rice, there's also a, a national Philippines Rice Research Institute, and one in Bangladesh, and one in Indonesia. I mean, this the rice research is a huge field because a huge number of people, hundreds of millions of people, depend upon rice as their staple for their energy in the same way that we depend on potatoes and carrots and corn and other starch-rich vegetables for our staple. And it's not a it's not a technical problem. It's it's a lot of work, but it can be done. And so what we should be doing is targeting those regions that have the worst problems, and focusing on the rice varieties 
that they prefer so that they will buy it. And, and that not only will it be the same as their rice varieties that they're using now, but it will have a nice golden hue to it. And so how close are they getting in places like the Philippines and Bangladesh to actually approving and deploying this technology? Golden rice has been proven for human consumption and animal consumption as a, as a feed in the Philippines. It's, it's, it's approved. Uh, that, that's just, it's been approved for over a year. And yet still the opposition is there and much of it is in left-wing activist groups at a local level. Uh, young people uh, who, who probably haven't got a clue even what a gene is uh, form these groups and scare the farmers into being afraid of it. Uh, the Philippines and that was another classic example with corn, uh, maize as, as, as they call it. Greenpeace said that there would be dying children and, 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 and clusters of dead people if they brought in genetic modified corn. And of course that scares the, the farmers. They're, they're not highly educated people usually. They've been grown up on a farm and work, start working when they're eight years old. And that scared them. But somehow or other in the Philippines, the people who understood the situation managed to overcome this. And, 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 and GM corn was approved in the Philippines, and it's really improved the productivity. It, it, in corn, it, what it does is it, it also reduces the corn borer, which is a, a, a worm, uh, a, a larvae of butterflies and moths. Uh, and the, the BT gene that is put into crops makes it so they don't, don't get all riddled full of, of bugs. And it actually reduces the potential for them being detrimental from a toxicity point of view, from the chemicals that these insects put into the, into the corn or whatever other crop that you're protecting. So it actually makes the food healthier. It makes it more productive. And it makes the farmers better off at the same time as producing a superior quality food. And there, there is no argument against using genetics to improve our food varieties. And one of the ironies of this is that the, the, the anti-GM movement said, we can't let Monsanto and these other huge companies do this because then all the small boutique seed companies will, ha will go broke, will go under. Well, as it turns out, they've made the rules so stringent for approving a GM crop that you have to have $100 million to get it through the approvals process. So it's only the big companies that can succeed in this. And they've, they've, it's actually been a self-fulfilling prophecy for them that now the small seed companies are, are trying to sell inferior seeds because the big seed companies have improved on those seeds. And that's the way it's been all through history. This whole thing about you know, I, what's the name for seeds that are old and uh, <laughs> legacy seeds or some oh, the heirloom, heirloom seeds, heirloom seeds. Yes, that's a fairy tale stuff. When you make a better seed, people use the better seed. If it what, whatever, whatever is better about it, yield, nutrition uh, for both the consumer and the producer. And that's just going to keep happening. The old seeds just get left by the wayside. They may be put in a seed bank somewhere where someday somebody might have a use for them, but just as likely not. 
because the newer seeds are superior. And that's been going for 10,000 years during the development agriculture. And genetic modification just speeds that up. So, and it also makes it possible to do things that cannot be done with conventional breeding, such as golden rice, which can solve the world's largest nutrient deficiency problem. Yeah, well, heirlooms are simply uh, fruits and vegetables that have very good sensory quality, but no production quality. So you can you can get something that you like and tastes good, but you can't make a lot of it, at least not for a profit. And so that's why those kinds of things are, are relegated to those kinds of sidelines. And, and modern production has been such a benefit. The golden rice is just an extension of that. And as you mentioned, it has been approved in the Philippines, but I've seen all this stuff lately about how they're undergoing a public comment period. So is that just something to twist the arm of Filipino regulators to try to co- convince them? I was going to say coerce, but it, it really is, uh, this is really convincing them that this is good science and something that could benefit their nation. No, it was already approved. So Greenpeace must have succeeded in leveraging some kind of review process that was not contemplated initially. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen that in the news. Uh, you know more than I do there then. And uh, th- they are not going to give up on this. They're going to fight it tooth and nail because it's a good fundraising campaign for them. Uh, it is amazing that you can make a good fundraising campaign about perpetuating death and, and, and suffering and blindness in millions of people. But they're, they're doing it. And as I say, it's not only immoral, it's a crime against humanity, and it should be tried in some international court. But I guess they've got too many dictators and terrorists and whatever in there to make this come to the top of the list. Well, I would encourage everybody to look on Facebook under Golden Rice Project. And this appears to be a legitimate website that comes from uh, either... Erie or one of the other organizations that's helping to produce this. And uh, right now they are asking for a letter to the director of the Bureau of Plant Industry in Manila. And if you go there, you can find the address. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to this to really, you know, take the words of this conversation to heart and a simple letter saying that this is a humanitarian step. It's going to take a lot of us to push back against someone against organizations like Greenpeace. And so, you know, I really do encourage you to, to look into that. I guess maybe kind of a good capstone on the discussion of golden rice is, is that golden rice is one of many crops now over the last 20 years, whether it's uh, potatoes, soybeans, uh, the Matoke banana, which we've covered here on this podcast. You know, there's all of these food staples, a cassava that have been modified with the same beta carotene trait and that is in just is in total opposition by people who don't want it to happen. How do you think that history will look back on our failure to implement technology that could help food security in the developing world? I don't know, Kevin. Uh, there, there, there is so much misconception these days. You know, one of the biggest problems we have in our society, uh, mechanization. Uh, and technology has been a wonderful thing in that it has eliminated grinding poverty for hundreds of millions of people, stoop labor in agriculture, uh, and, you know, 70% of the population involved in growing food in the fields. 
that's no longer the case in a in an industrialized country. So it's been very good on that level. It's resulted in the emancipation of women, uh, it, children being educated rather than being used as farm labor from the time they're six years old, and so many other things. But there's one downside to mechanization. Now a vast majority of people live in completely artificial environments called cities. And they have no clue, by and large, about where their stuff comes from or how it gets to them. And the environmental movement has taken advantage of this by getting the people in the cities to think that the real destroyers of nature are the people out in the country who are plowing and drilling and blasting and dredging and cutting and doing all the things out there that they see. They say they are the destroyers of nature. Actually, what they're doing is getting all the stuff the people in the city need to survive. They're getting the food, the energy, and the materials to build a city with. Where do the people in the city think the concrete and asphalt and wood to build the city come from? Where do they think the food comes from to prevent them from starving in their 30th floor condominium? You know, and if, if only there was a massive effort to bring people out into the countryside from the city schools and show them how their stuff is being made for them to keep them alive in those cities. Because the cities are completely artificial environment. And it's out in the country where almost everything is created or in factories around the cities. But that stuff all comes from the countryside too or from the ocean one way or another. And this is the, the downside of mechanization from a political point of view is that it's polarized society in this way and the city people are by far the majority. And uh, I think the same thing is true of what's happened in the United States politics. It's the heartland where the food is grown and the minerals are mined and the oil is drilled, etc., uh, where people understand where stuff comes from and how, how it is that we're able to actually continue living on this planet. And th there, there you go. I, I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen with that situation. Uh, but the the people who are providing all the resources for the people in the city are being treated badly, uh, and they shouldn't be, because the people in the city depend on them absolutely for their very survival every day. Yeah, I guess I would even extend that one one worse in two ways. You know, one is you know what I live on a on a farm. We uh, do fruits, vegetables, eggs for local uh, community. And people in our community, we're relatively rural, and people here don't understand how it happens. And so it, I think it's a real tough putt to be able to think about getting folks from, you know, downtown New York, Raleigh, Orlando, to really start to appreciate where it comes from. It's going to be a battle. The other side of that is that at the same time, the developing world has issues like vitamin A deficiency, where it's very easy when you're well-fed to say, we don't want that technology for them. And it's a lack of appreciation, not just of, of what happens in rural America, but beyond their artificial bubble. And I'm not sure how we solve that. Neither am I, uh, Kevin. It's the dark underbelly of uh, human caringlessness or something like that. Uh, it's very sad. 
that people don't have an open enough mind or a broad enough perspective uh, to see the truth of these things. But so many people are stuck in this woke philosophy that just is completely divorced from nature altogether, uh, yet they, they act as though they're environmentalists or whatever. Uh, it, it's, hard, it's hard to say where this goes in the end. Hopefully, uh, the good will prevail and golden rice will become uh, adopted around the world in the tropical countries. And not just golden rice, but as you say, there are so many other varieties of food that can be fortified with vitamin A uh, to do this task, uh, whether it's bananas or cassava or so many other things. Uh, and education to help people maybe change away from rice being so much the staple, but it's pretty hard to deal with the situation where you're dealing with the poorest of the poor, of which there are hundreds of millions in this world who can only afford a cup of rice a day. They can't afford heirloom tomato, and they can't afford a different fruit. They can only, you know, rice is cheap. And golden rice will be just as cheap as regular rice. That's the whole deal with the Golden Rice Project. And the Golden Rice Project is still controlled by the inventors, Ingo and Peter Beyer, Ingo Potricus and Peter Beyer, with Adrian, um, Adrian, not Clarkson, uh, Dubois, Adrian Dubois as the executive director. He's a former political person from England who decided to make the rest of his career into running this organization. So please do go and take a look at them and also look at allowgoldenricenow.org. You'll see the history of our campaign, which was very successful at reaching people with a positive message about golden rice. Up until we started, nobody was campaigning for golden rice. Scientists and bureaucrats were working on it, but nobody was campaigning for it. And there were hundreds of groups campaigning against it and every other GMO. So maybe I could give a little bit of a description about my latest work. Uh, yeah, there. yeah. Well, let me let me uh, let me segue to that because that was my next question. Was you know you you have a um, you you've been on the campaign for golden rice for a long time and some other issues, and you've written books in the past on various topics, but you have a new one coming out now. So tell how much is golden rice a part of this book, and what are some of the other topics you touch on? Well. Genetic technology and golden rice are one of is one of the chapters in the book, and that's where I point out that whatever is in GMOs in general, never mind just golden rice, must not exist. It is a fake thing, and that's why the book is called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, because it dawned on me one day, I should have thought of this a long time ago, that nearly all the scare stories, perhaps all of them, can be traced back to something that is either invisible, that what they're blaming for the catastrophe is either something visible like carbon dioxide or radiation, both of which cannot be sensed by the human senses. Radiation from nuclear energy is what I'm referring to. Or they are so remote like coral reefs and polar bears, or in the future, which is not only remote, it hasn't happened yet. All of the scare stories are like that, so that the average person 
cannot verify, cannot even observe, never mind verify, the truth of the claims made about the end of the world or whatever it is that they're saying is going to happen, the terrible catastrophes and doomsday stories that they have coming out now. They're all based on things that nobody can verify. As a result of that, the only people you can rely on for information on these subjects are the very activists, media, politicians, and scientists who are pushing these fake, invisible catastrophes and threats of doom, and all have a huge amount of skin in the game that you're going to believe it. Because if you don't believe it, you won't buy the newspaper, and you won't make a donation, and you won't vote for that guy, and you won't let your government continue to you know, shovel out serial scientific grants to these people who say the science is settled on these things, but yet they still need hundreds of millions of dollars a year for some reason to continue researching them, and that nobody should listen to people who are skeptical of these scare stories because the science is settled, and, and those people should shut up. Not only that, they should be canceled, and they should be uh, you know, fired, and they should be called names and all that. So that's where we've got to with these scare stories, and so my book exposes in 12 chapters, 12 very clear examples ranging from, as I mentioned, polar bears and coral reefs, both of which are perfectly happy and healthy. There is no threat to either of those two things in this world from climate change or anything else. And the same thing is true of you know the forest fires in California. They blame it on climate change. It's forest management that is the problem. I don't know if anybody has seen a photograph of the town of Paradise where I think 90 people were killed in the forest fire. They built the town in a coniferous forest, like a mature coniferous forest. So the trees were like 20 feet from the houses. And that's why it burnt down, because of stupid design of a suburb. They should have cut almost all those coniferous trees down and made lumber and paper out of them and planted deciduous trees like oaks and, and, and uh, other maples and such. Because coniferous trees are full of pitch. And when the fire comes and there's a strong wind, it just goes through faster than any person or animal can run. That's what happened in California. Bad management all around and also not keeping the fuel load down in the forests. So it, had not, it has nothing to do with climate change. And then there's the whole climate change issue, which does have to do with climate change, but it doesn't have anything to do with carbon dioxide. You can't point over across the, the, the street and say, look what the carbon dioxide's doing over there, because it's invisible. And so they can make up any story they want about it, and that's what they do. So, But read the book. Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. It's on Amazon. It is getting almost entirely five-star reviews. It's selling well for a book that's just come out, and it's going to sell better because word of mouth will do that for it. It's written so it's understandable to non-scientists, anybody from age 14 up, if they have a good command of English, will have no trouble understanding everything in the book. And it exposes all these scare stories as scams. That, and that is exactly what they are. Trillions of dollars are being made based on these scare stories. And one of the main amounts of those trillions is all these wind farms and salmon, fa uh, salmon farms, 
all these wind farms and solar farms going in around the world that at least it's going to be self-correcting. They're going to get so much of this stuff that it's going to have blackouts everywhere. So people will realize that that was the wrong way to go at some point, but not only after spending hundreds of billions of dollars on a stupid technology, when we have perfectly good technologies based on hydroelectric, nuclear, and fossil fuels to produce reliable energy 24-7 for our civilization. Well, let me just kind of push back a little bit there just to, just to see where we are on the same page. You know, we have been mining carbon out of the earth, right? I mean, oil and gas, natural gas, these are, these are carbon sources that was sequestered, and we've essentially taken the carbon out of there and moved it up here, moved it up into the biosphere. And we do see, like you measure on Mauna Loa, that carbon dioxide concentration keeps going up, and certainly greenhouse gases, that's not, you know, that's not even controversial science uh, or is it you know i mean as far as i'm concerned it seemed to be a very plausible explanation for why we see temperatures continuing to increase so where where does that turn into a scam for you like help me out here a little that's what they're telling you kevin and everybody else in the world they want you to think the world began in 1850 for one thing which is when industrialization began and we began emitting carbon dioxide at at substantial levels into the environment but where did that carbon dioxide that we are releasing come from in the first place? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, came can... yeah. it came from the oceans. It came from organisms using it as food. All of the fossil fuels were made with solar energy. They were made with photosynthesis. They were made with carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide ended up being stored in the form of fossil fuels. But that's just a minor part of it. The main part of it over the last half billion years has been taken out of the air and water by the marine calcifying species. All the different species, it's an amazing array because it is such a successful evolutionary development. The creation of calcium carbonate shells, the carbon being the carbonate part, from CO2 and calcium being combined by marine organisms to make armor plating for themselves to protect their soft bodies. And so that has all rained onto the ocean floor over the millions of years. And CO2 has been constantly depleted from the atmosphere and the oceans over that time. If you just take the last 150 million years, for example, 150 million years ago, CO2 was somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 parts per million. During a warm period, that lasted for 250 million years through that whole time. You see, Earth, the Earth is colder now than it has been for 250 million years, which was the end of the previous ice age, the Karoo, which lasted 100 million years at the same kind of temperatures our Earth has been in in this Pleistocene ice age for the last 2.5 million years. The last, you see, the, the, the most recent major glaciation peaked 20,000 years ago. During that glaciation, CO2 sank to 180 ppm, only 30 ppm above the death of plants. That was the lowest it has been in the history of this planet, which is 4.6 billion years, and certainly in the history of life, which is 3.5 billion years. It had never been that low before. Right now, at this time in history, and coming out of the last glaciation, the most recent glaciation, I 
I try to make sure not to refer to it as the last glaciation because we have no idea how many more of these glaciations there will be in this glacial period, which is the Pleistocene, which is only 2.5 million years old, only 1% of the length of the Karoo, which was the previous ice age. So the Earth is colder now than it has been for 250 million years. Even in this interglacial period, you may notice that it froze right down to the Gulf of Mexico recently, and which is well below uh, halfway to the North Pole. And also, CO2 is lower than it has been in the history of life, not just since 250,000 years, in the history of life during this era the era of the Pleistocene Ice Age. It's never been this low. We have come along, and just like the calcifying marine organisms inadvertently figured out how to take carbon dioxide out of the water and make shells for themselves, we inadvertently discovered fossil fuels and started using them as energy, putting CO2 back into the atmosphere where it came from in the first place thus restoring a balance to the global carbon cycle. That's what we have done. We are life's salvation, not its ruination, not its destruction. We, are the, we, we inadvertently have saved life from an eventual level of CO2 that would result in the death of all life because it was being lost to the sediments in the form of calcium carbonate primarily and those marine organisms were not going to stop using CO2 and calcium to make their shells until everything on the land was dead. And then everything in the sea would come later. So that was, that's the prospect that life uh, had before it until we came along and started restoring a balance to the carbon cycle. And when you look at the history of CO2 and temperature, it is very clear that there is not a cause-effect relationship there. They are only very temporarily correlated at this time and at a few other times in the past as well, but correlation is not causation. The classic case to show the difference between the two is shark attacks and ice cream consumption. These two variables are highly correlated. When there are the most shark attacks, there is the highest amount of ice cream consumption. That's because it happens in the summer. In other words, a third factor, temperature, is causing that correlation to exist. It's not as if there is a cause-effect relationship between ice cream consumption and shark attacks. And here, since 1850, we have a correlation between rising temperature and rising CO2. But the temperature started rising in 1700 when the Little Ice Age peaked, and it has continued to rise at the same rate as it did during those first 150 years from 1700 to 1850, when humans weren't putting any significant amount of CO2 into the atmosphere. In fact, it wasn't till 1950 that our CO2 emissions began to be exponential, but you could measure the difference from 1850. But that's only 170 years. So for the first half of the last 320 years, we were not putting CO2 into the atmosphere, and the temperature was rising. And if you look at the thermometer record from central England, 
that is the oldest record where of a continuous measurement by a thermometer on in this world starting in 1670 or something probably when they first invented uh, reliable thermometers we have that record and it shows a steady slow 1.2 1.5 degree celsius rise in temperature since then and then we come to this absolutely factuous idea that another half a degree is going to cause mass species extinctions and a collapse of human civilization. When, when, when Chicago, Illinois and Columbus, Ohio are more than two degrees C different in their average annual temperature, and they're only a couple hundred miles away from each other. I mean, there, it's, it's just ridiculous to think that two degrees from 1700 or 1.5 degrees, they've tried to back off to that to make it even more impossible for us to do it, if that's what we're supposed to do. That temperature increase is happening naturally. There's no reason to believe it isn't, because it started happening naturally for 150 years at 1700. And the graph is in my book. So read my book. If you, I, I know every, people have all been indoctrinated into thinking this. People have been indoctrinating into thinking that plastic is destroying the oceans. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, supposedly twice the size of Texas, that's what CNN says, and three times the size of France, is a fake. It doesn't exist. It is not there. There is no Pacific Garbage Patch. It is a Photoshop on the internet. So I'll just stop there because I could go into that subject for <laughs> a very long time. But the book has everything in it. And after you've read this book, you unless you are completely indoctrinated into the cult of climate catastrophe, you will believe what I am saying because I've written it very clearly and provided references for every single assertion that I have made. And I'm not basing my opinions on something I can't observe or verify which is what people are doing in the case of CO2, radiation, coral reefs, polar bears. How many people have gone to the North Pole to count the polar bears? Well, a handful. And up till now, they've been lying to us until it was exposed a couple of years ago by the people who happened to live there, the Inuit people, that the polar bear population was exploding to such an extent that they felt it necessary to, to pass a polar bear management plan because they were going to funerals of their friends who were being killed by them, that there are so many. They've grown at least by four times. And just one more point about polar bears. I have audiences of 100 to 500 people very often. I ask them, how many of you heard of the treaty that was signed in 1973 among all the polar countries, including Denmark, which has Greenland, which has a lot of polar bears, but the United States, Russia, Norway, etc., all signed a treaty to end the unrestricted hunting of polar bears in 1973 because wildlife biologists told them that now that it was so easy to fly up there and get an Inuit guide and get a couple of rugs for in front of your fireplace, that the polar bear population was declining. So they passed that treaty. No one knows about it because the media has never told us about it and the activists don't tell us about it. That treaty resulted in an incredible success story, one of the most important success stories in animal conservation in the last hundred years, a complete recovery of the polar bear population from 10,000 to at least 35,000 today. And that is the actual scientific fact. 
the, the people who were lying about it have had to admit it. It's now a graph that's been published showing this very clearly. Only Susan Crockford, an adjunct professor at the University of Victoria, lost her job over it because she's the one who exposed it. And uh, she, she was vilified, canceled, and stripped of all her credentials, even though she is one of the most important people. PolarBearScience.org is her website. I recommend it highly. No, very good. You just gave me a lot to unpack there, but let me just throw a couple quick things if you have time. You know, the, when you talk about the correlation of CO2 and temperature, we can experimentally demonstrate that. I mean, at least at the laboratory level or in small scales. And it, it does, when, when I look at, and, and let me start where I'm at. I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself a climate skeptic. I would call myself um, a skeptic of the catastrophic interpretations. But I've seen so many seminars of very good life sciences who, and, and I know what farmers are going through, that say we can grow crops for three more weeks in Canada than we could in the 1950s. Um, we have unpredictable, we used to do very well with peaches in this area of Florida. We can't do it anymore because it's too hot. Um, we do see other, other changes that are happening on a time scale that, you know, you talk about, okay, 150 million years ago, 250 million years ago. Great. But the changes are so rapid now that we no, use. No, you don't think so. So, so what, of course, what of course they're not. It's only been 1.2 degrees Celsius since 1850. That's happened way more. Uh, radical changes have happened even during the Holocene, which is only 11,000 years old. I mean, yeah, but how do we know that? I mean, we all the proxy data we look at for things like ice cores, tree rings, other fossilized stuff, you can get ideas that if where we were and that there have been changes. We know that. No, they, they, don't don't compare tree rings with ice cores. Ice cores are physical. Tree rings are biological. And so many other factors are influencing tree rings. Ice cores are only affected by physical factors. And we have very good temperature records especially for that short period of time back. We've got good temperature records going back 500 million years from marine sediments. And this is from isotopes, oxygen-18 being the primary one. So we, we do have good records, Kevin. But it, the Younger Dryas, for example, was a period at the beginning of the Holocene where temperature plummeted. Some people think it was because of extraterrestrial impacts uh, similar to the dinosaur extinction, only much less ex extensive but nobody knows for sure. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the Greenland ice core and also the marine sediment records for the Holocene uh, interglacial period, you will see it's up and down and up and down and up and down all the time. There's, there's ups and downs all the way through it. And we just happen to be in a little up blip right now. And it's a very small one compared to much of it. We're actually in a 6,000 year cooling period now. The Holocene has been cooling for 6,000 years. The Sahara was green for the first 6,000 years of the Holocene interglacial because it was warmer and wetter. And now it's cooler and drier. That's just a fact. I mean, the, 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 the st read my book, Kevin, and, and, oh. and just take a look at the, I cover it very extensively. The, the chapter on climate is a quarter of the book because it deserves that much space because there are so many aspects. But another factor is that water is by far the most important greenhouse gas. CO2 is a minor greenhouse gas. 
compared to water vapor. And clouds, see water and the oceans is where you look to see the changes, the slow changes that occur in the heat budget of the earth. The oceans contain 1,000 times as much heat as the atmosphere does. The oceans control the temperature of the earth more than the atmosphere does. The clouds are extremely important. Clouds reflect light back from the sun, preventing it from coming and warming the earth, and clouds hold heat in to the earth from the bottom side of themselves. Uh, and, and they are also greenhouse gas. There's water vapor in clouds as well as condensed water. So th this is a huge subject. I am fully schooled in it. I'm a, I'm a director of the CO2 Coalition in Arlington, Virginia, outside DC, where we have a stellar group of scientists in the atmospheric physics area, Dick Linson and Will Happer, uh, for two, and also engineers and economists were looking this at this from a holistic situation as to what's happening regarding the, the effects of CO2, and our conclusion is clear. Increased CO2 is 100% beneficial for the environment and for the human species. The greening of the earth has resulted in a 34% plus or minus four, I think it is, increase in global biomass, that is the amount of vegetation. That's why only 50% of our CO2 emissions are showing up in the atmosphere each year. We put 10,000 billion tons of carbon as CO2 into the atmosphere each year. Only 5 billion of it shows up there. The other 5 billion, much of it is going into increased biomass. Some of it may be going into the oceans where it's also acting as a fertilizer. And one last uh, anecdote that people will relate to, because the sciencey part of the climate thing is pretty, pretty deep. But I used to laugh at, at people who said that their plants liked it when they talked to them. People would sit with their plants and talk nicely to them. And they said their plants actually grew better when they did that. And I'm going, oh, yeah, right. Plants can't hear. They don't have ears, right? Well, yeah, except CO2 is their main food, and we're breathing 40,000 ppm of CO2 on them when we exhale. That's 100 times the, the, the quantity that's in the atmosphere nor, normally around them, which is 400 and some. So we are actually breathing super-saturated fertilizer onto our houseplants when we talk to them in our house, and it will make them happier and grow better. There's no doubt about it. And that's what's happening on a global level now in both the land and the sea, but mostly on the land. It, the, the oceans are very difficult to study, of course, because they're also rather remote and invisible from the surface, whereas we can see what's going on on the land from a, from a satellite photograph. We can't see what's going on under the sea without going there in bathytherm you know, things. And so, so it's much harder to understand the dynamics of the sea than it is the dynamics of the atmosphere and the land. But we do know for sure that the growing uh, of crops is moving further north, 200 kilometers by every degree increase in Celsius. And because the earth warms mainly towards the poles when it does, when they say that Canada is warming twice as fast as the global average, that's only to be expected. 
because the equator doesn't warm when the Earth warms. It stays relatively the same throughout the really warm periods of, of history. You know, we're at the end of a 50 million year cooling period here. The Holocene thermal maximum occurred 50 million years ago. And we didn't, it started to descend way back then. And over the last 50 million years, about 30 million years ago, Antarctic started to freeze up a bit. Then about 5 million years ago, the Arctic started to freeze up. And 2.5 million years ago, we were plunged into this Pleistocene Ice Age, which we don't know when it's going to end, because you cannot know that. And, you know, because we don't have a crystal ball, which is actually a mythical object. There is no such thing. And when they pretend that computer models are crystal balls, they are lying to us. Because what goes in automatically determines what comes out. So if you're a scientist and you think you know that a rise in CO2 is going to cause a rise in global temperature, if you put that into the computer model, that's what it will tell you. The computer model is a tool, not an oracle or a soothsayer or a fortune teller. We cannot predict the future of the climate. Niels Bohr said it most succinctly, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. And Yogi Berra got the credit for it because he quoted Niels Bohr in a baseball game and got it in the media. But it was actually a Nobel Physics Prize winner, Niels Bohr, who made that <laughs> statement in the first place. Well, well, let me ask you like two more questions. We'll wrap it up. I know we're getting a little long here, but you know, to me, I follow things like the National Academy of Sciences for synthesis of complex title, compact, complex issues like climate that are beyond my immediate expertise and my immediate familiarity with the literature, and I rely on a rather esteemed body to be able to make that synthesis. So how and and their interpretations are very conservative, by the way. They're they're you know not screaming the earth is over next year or in two years or polar bears or whatever. What they're saying is, is that there's clear evidence that human activity is forcing um, higher elevations of CO2, which contribute to temperature and biological effects that we can measure. And so how do I, as a scientist, a guy who's got his you know, pretty good chops in this area, who am I supposed to trust? The National Academies of Science are hopelessly compromised in this field, and so is nearly every other scientific body. You have to remember that these scientific bodies are not really scientific organizations. They are political organizations representing the interests of their members, much of which is to gain grants for doing their work, mostly from taxpayer money. So that's where the politicians come in. The politicians want the scientists to feed this to them so that they can scare the public. Because, you know, I, 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 I believe that we should recognize that we cannot predict the future. This, this last Arctic storm, everybody's saying, oh, well, it, it, it has to do with global warming, you know. Uh, oh, sure. Like, and someone said to me <laughs> that, that the Arctic air is warm now, so that air couldn't have come from the Arctic. Well, where in the name of goodness did it come from then? Of course it came from the Arctic. And it was even colder when it was in the Arctic because it comes south, it warms up. It wasn't as, as cold in Texas as it was in North Dakota. You know, so there, there, there's a lot of uh, factors involved in this that uh, people don't see through. And the fact of the matter is 
the, the, on the subject of climate in particular, the whole climate establishment is compromised deeply. And they're all in it together because that's what they depend on for their living. That's why I say that's the reason that all the scare stories are based on things that are invisible or remote is because the average person can't verify it for themselves. And so they have to rely on the people who have the most skin in the game in these things being believed by the public for the truth. And they're not getting it, of course. They're getting what these people want us to believe. And they want us to believe that the earth is in great danger from climate change, when in fact, it's a beneficial factor. A little bit of warming would be a good thing. If you, if you go back before 1850, or even go back before this interglacial period, and study the history of the climate of the earth, almost all the geologists understand this, because they think in tens of millions of years, and the history of the earth. But even the International Commission on Stratigraphy is totally compromised. They have declared that the Pleistocene Ice Age is over and that the Holocene Interglacial is now an epic. The Pleistocene is an epic, for goodness sakes, and it's had at least 40 glacial periods, one of which occurred just before this interglacial period. So for every glacial period, there's been an interglacial period. We are just in a garden variety interglacial period, and they've suddenly decided that it's on par with the entire Ice Age, and that therefore we've come out of the Pleistocene into the Holocene epoch. And now the people, and these are real scientists, who want the Commission on Stratigraphy to name this era now, since 1950, the Anthropocene epoch. It's the shortest epoch that's ever existed in the history of the world by about a million times, because <laughs> epics are usually more than a million years old. The Holocene epoch is 10,000 years old, and the Anthropocene epoch would be 70 years old. And so they've squished it down into a time span that the average person can understand because they were, weren't even born yet. But when you were born is not when life began. And 1850 isn't when life began either. It began 3.5 million years ago. A parting thought, which gives you a perspective on life. There's a tendency uh, to think that we are on a separate chain from everything else, that you know, all, all of life is diffuse. When in fact, every single living thing, every bacteria, every insect, every tree, every human, every single living thing, has a recorded history of an unbroken reproduction back to the beginning of life. Every one of us, every clam, every spider, has reproductive success to the beginning of life, or it wouldn't be here. Because once you break the chain, that's the end of it. And that's the pruning of the branches on the evolutionary tree. But every one of us who are on the evolutionary tree, that is every single, single thing that is alive today, can trace their ancestry back to the beginning of life. And that is a nice thing to think about, how we are all part of a common beginning, and we should stop thinking about humans as some invasion from outer space that is destroying the planet. We are part of the planet. And as uh, James Lovelock said, Gaia is all the species acting in concert to make the atmosphere in particular more conducive to life. And a human species has played 
one of the most important roles in that in the last 150 years by putting some CO2 back into the atmosphere that was taken out of it by life in the first place. And we have restored a balance to the global carbon cycle. That's the most important piece of news regarding the human contribution to the existence of life on Earth. Yeah, I guess, do you see the, the, the thing when we discuss it like that, though, that here we are talking about the National Academies of Science and we're saying that we can't trust them. You know, your, your claim is that, you know, that's political and scientists vying for grants. But that's what the people say about the National Academies about Golden Rice. And they say, you know, the opponents of Golden Rice, they say, well, the National Academy, obviously all bought off and, uh, you know, they're um, political and they're just there to get grants and they're all owned by companies who are pulling the strings. And, and so you can see how these kinds of issues get really difficult for people because we're, we're trying to sort through this. And that's why the podcast is here. And that's why I was glad to have you on and why I was glad to touch the edge of the, of the climate issue. How do we know where to find something we can trust? Because we want to do what's right. Well, and whatever you've read already, read my book. Yeah. Uh, I, I, this, is a six, this is 60 years of learning. I've been a lifelong learner since I was 12. It's actually, you know, it, it, it's something I've pursued my entire existence. has been immersed in it. For some reason, a kid from a float camp on the north end of Vancouver Island ended up doing a PhD in ecology and continuing from there 15 years in the movement, uh, trying to help with some of the most serious environmental issues. When, when that had been largely addressed and we'd figured out how to make pollution control on our machinery and stuff, they started to end up having to invent campaigns. And that's where it became, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, compromised by fundraising, etc., And it's, it's compromised at a very large level on the climate issue by fundraising and money. There's no doubt about it. And it's trillions of dollars. Look at all the money that's gone into the wind and solar technology, which was the, one of the stupidest decisions at a collective level that humanity could ever have made. And, and the only reason it happened is because of the subsidies, the tax breaks, and the mandates, political mandates that the utilities had to buy it if it was available no matter what cost. If you took all of those props out from under wind and solar, it would not exist. They would rust in place, as I have said many times. Yeah, and and I think is- I've, but, I, but I think I've seen, you know, we've heard that. We've heard good criticisms of renewables at the same time as we've heard um, you know, the, we've seen their deployment and we get that, you know, but here's an important point, I think, is that. Yeah, but do you, you know, agree with that? Do you agree with me about the wind and solar, that it's been a giant waste of money and that as soon as it gets up to a certain percentage, it's going to show itself in, in blackouts. And it is already in Australia, in Texas and many other states in this incident here, I understand. And that's what happens when you go there. It's the wrong technology. Intermittent technology is no good for a situation where you need power 24-7. People start buying diesel generators. I understand Joe Biden has just sent a bunch of diesel generators to Texas. That's, that's a, a, a good one. 
Well, uh, but, but that's what that's the only out we have right now. And, and and I, you know, I live on a farm where a lot of things we do is are solar and, and it's it's a pain and we do it because because it, well, it's it's more practical and, and applicable. But here's the I think is I don't want to look at this at my level or your level. I'd like to look at this at let's say where do you think where do you think we'll be in 300 years? I don't imagine I think there are going to be technologies that we should be seeking as leaders in energy production, whether it's the US or Canada or anybody. We should be lead, showing, and this is maybe my best way to put away the debate on climate and, and fossil fuels is there has to be something better, nuclear something, that we can use and use more efficiently. And we need to be investing in figuring out what that is. Because I don't think that, because we, I don't think that uh, fossil fuel is forever and other ones just aren't ready for prime time. So how do we get to the thing that really is going to do it? The, the solution is nuclear energy, which there's fuel for tens of thousands of years, unlike fossil fuels, which, as you say, will run out one day, not because we don't want to use them anymore. It's because there aren't going to be any more. So the best thing we could do is think of fossil fuels in terms of conservation, not in terms of that they are destroying the world. They're not destroying the world. They are making our lives a lot better and have been doing so for some time now. And they are, in, they, they are resulting in the increase in fossil fuel in the atmosphere, which is resulting in a tremendous increase in food crop production. About 70% of all the increase in food crop production is due to the higher CO2. So that's just a fact. But when it comes to replacing fossil fuels, we could eliminate 50% of the fossil fuels we are using today with nuclear electricity. 40% of all the energy used in the United States, as an example of an industrialized country, is for buildings, heating, cooling, hot water, lights, and appliances in buildings. All of those things can be replaced with nuclear electricity. They can, Of course, they can be run with hydroelectricity, with fossil fuel electricity, but they can also be run with nuclear electricity. Hydroelectricity is pretty much built out in most countries. And, and, and is only a limited resource because of you need the right topography and rainfall regime for that to be available. But nuclear can be built anywhere in the world. And so what we need to do is, is look at what Russia, China, and India are doing, building scores of new nuclear plants. That's what they're doing. Russia is by far the leader in the technology. China is the leader in stealing everybody else's technology and building really good nuclear plants, but they're, they're just doing cookie cutter. They're not trying to, uh, like Russia is doing, is, is actually you know, on the forefront of technological advance in nuclear technology. The United States has 96 nuclear plants operating. It had 104. It's going down. The United States is, is building a couple more. They cost so much more in overruns because of overregulation. It's a real problem, but here's what nuclear could do for the world. First, it could replace the energy for everything that is stationary. In industry, electric arc furnaces, which are massive consumers of electricity, can be run with nuclear. All the trains could be run with nuclear. All the deep sea shipping can be run with nuclear. If you can take 100 thermonuclear warheads underwater for three months in a submarine that's powered by nuclear energy, you can put any boat on the sea with nuclear energy, including all the oil tankers and cargo ships. We could do a tremendous amount to increase the use 
of nuclear energy for all stationary purposes and railroads and shipping. The real problems are, are cars, trucks, and airplanes, especially trucks and airplanes, heavy transport. So that might need to use fossil fuels for another 100 years or so before we might figure something else out there. But right now, we could be building nuclear to replace fossil fuels for all of the buildings. That's 40% of our energy right there. And also for all other stationary industrial equipment, all the electric motors that are running in all the factories across the United States could be run by nuclear electricity. So that, that's my answer to that question, Kevin. No, and I, and I love it. I, I think that's where ultimately when we get uh, ahead 100 years, 200 years, that's where we're going to be. And um, I, I really hope that we do get there and that the better energy economy and more access to energy and, uh, and improves access to food and solves the problems with food security that we started to talk about in the beginning of this. And, and I really have to thank you for joining. So if people want to uh, buy your book, where do they get it? And where do they find you on social media? They find me on social media still sticking with Twitter because I've got over 95,000 followers. It's down from 107. I think that's largely because people have left Twitter. But I, I still think it's a worthwhile place to be, especially to counter all, all of the crazy ideas that, that, that are on there. Uh, so tw on Twitter, I'm at Ecosense now. Uh, and that's the best place to look for me in social media. I have a website, ecosense.me, but I haven't been doing a very good job of updating, but it has lots of interesting historical stuff on it. Uh, my book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom, is on all Amazon platforms. So just go to amazon.com. It's available as a Kindle for $7.50. It's available as a print book. It's a little more money because it has over 100 color plates, and that's because I have used a lot of photographs, illustrations, and graphs to make the book rich in information with lots of captions underneath explaining situations that are fairly complicated, especially in the climate realm. And if you read the reviews on Amazon, which are up to about 35 reviews now, almost all five-star reviews, one person gave me a four-star review because I said the world was 4.6 billion years old and they don't agree with that. So, okay, people have <laughs> religious beliefs. Uh, there's a three-star review by someone that's, that tries to turn my own argument on me, saying that I'm, I can't know what invisible things are doing either. But actually, I don't pretend to, so it's not a very good argument. But I have to give him, you know, E for effort or whatever. Uh, and it, it, you'll find that this book is very readable, and people have said once you get into it, you want to keep reading. A lot of people just read it from beginning to end. It's only 208 pages, but it is thoroughly packed. And if you read all 350-odd references in that book, you would know a lot about all these subjects. Well, Dr. Patrick Moore, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a uh, interesting and provocative session, at least. I really do appreciate you taking the time, and I hope we can continue the dialogue on Twitter with you uh, between listeners of the podcast and, um, and your thoughts as we go forward. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's nice to have a lively conversation with a little bit of controversy and a lot of information. Thank you, Kevin. 
Yeah, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, write a review on iTunes. Um, I got a three-star one because they didn't like the music that I played. So there you go. Um, three-star review on, uh, write a five-star review if you can. Um, they're very helpful in helping us move up in our ratings, which are going higher and higher all the time. We're the number 20 life science podcast in China. And um, my Chinese is not so good. So it says we're really making an impact. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.